John chapter 12, verse 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus, or Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So God, one more time, we we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that we are not here for any man's opinion or the wisdom of philosophers or scholars. Lord, we are here to hear from the living God. We've opened your word, the inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient, authoritative, all satisfying word of God, the sword of the spirit of God that was breathed out by the spirit for our nourishment, for our salvation, for our building up in righteousness. So please, Holy Spirit, help us to behold the the wondrous things in your word today. And above all, we say with these Greeks, show us Jesus. That's what we want. That's why we're here. That's what we came for today. Even if we didn't even know it, we need Jesus. So please show us Jesus today. It's in, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as Travis mentioned earlier in his prayer, we live in a backwards world. Since the fall of humanity, and maybe it was a few hours into human existence, as Adam and Eve rebelled against God and, and, and ate from the apple, from that very moment, everything has been backwards for humanity. We, since that day, tend to think right is wrong and wrong is right. We deny that which brings us life and we run after stuff that brings us death. We think that freedom is found away from God, away from his law. We think that it's actually freedom to be slaves to our own sin. We think that fulfillment is found in living for ourselves. We live in a backwards world. We treat children as an as a inconvenience rather than a source of joy and blessing. We actually live in a world that is running against the grain of how we were made to live. Listen, 
We often say, you know, the kingdom of God, it's this upside down kingdom. Listen, it's the world we live in that's upside down. It's this world that is upside down. We are, we are in a backwards world. And at the, the center of all things, there is a triune God who is eternally happy. And he's full of love and he's full of goodness and he's full of beauty. And these three persons in this one triune God have been just giving up love for one another. They've been glorifying one another. At the center of all things is this, this, this concept of agape love, this self-giving love. And when God created, it was an overflow of his own nature, his own self-giving love. And so he created and he created the world to work that way. The way the world works is, is, is this, as everyone just gives of themselves, as we concern ourselves with God and with others. It's built into the fabric of creation. Joy and life and satisfaction and fulfillment is found in giving yourself up to God and to others. But we live in a backwards world, a world that is lying to us about truth and joy and goodness and beauty and freedom. We have an enemy who has been lying to us from the start. And he's done a pretty good job. He has fooled the world about what is life and true and, and good. And, and often he's, he's even trying to, to fool the people of God. That, that wisdom and joy are found away from the commandments of God. Did God really say? And so, as we mentioned, we fell. We've, we've messed, we, we have so broken the world that, that it's, it's completely backwards. But incredibly, this, this, listen to this, the self-giving God of the universe devised a plan to rescue the world. And how would he do it? Well, the way he's always done it, by giving up himself, by sending his own eternal son, the second person of the Trinity to take on fallen human flesh, to offer his own life as a guilt offering, to take the place of those who have, who have rebelled against God. For, for those who would trust in him, he said, I'll be their death. I'll take the wrath of God so that they could have life. That's at the core of the essence of God and creation and the whole story of the Bible. And in our text today, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, as he's, he's entering the final week of his life, as he entered in as this, this humble king, he, he tells us the nature of his, his kingdom and what he's, what he's about to go do. And what he's doing, we said this last week, he's, he's been running, he's been hiding, he hasn't been stirring up a crowd. Anytime a crowd would come and try and make him king, he would escape. It hasn't been time, but, but finally it's time. And he is, he is making a, a conscious decision to enter Jerusalem at the most crowded week of the whole year. And he's doing so as a king, entering on a donkey. He's, he's drawing attention to himself and, and he's actually... He himself is orchestrating the circumstances 
that will lead to his own death. So we're going to look at our text. We're going to walk through every verse and we can sum it up in two headings, if you will. Two headings to kind of categorize where we're going. Let's wait for that helicopter. Wow, that's pretty awesome. That was crazy. Um, The first heading of our text is the request. And that's in verses 20 through 22. And then secondly, we're going to see the response in verses 23 to 26. First, the request, verses 20 through 22. And then the response, verses 23 to 26. And we're going to see first in this request, John, John cues us in. He fills us in on a very important conversation. Something happened that evoked a response from Jesus. And in the response, Jesus is going to say four things about the cross. And that's really like our application today. So that's kind of where we're going. So first, let's look at the request together. Let's look again at verse 20. It says this, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Uh, These Greeks were not Jewish uh, or Greek-speaking Jews. These were were men who were Greek, who feared God. They would often go up to worship at the temple in the courtyard of the Greeks. They weren't Jews. They weren't converted to Judaism, but they feared God. We see them often in the book of Acts. We know um, there was a court of the Gentiles where these guys could go worship. Interestingly enough, there was a wall there was like a doorway that the Jews would walk through to go to the inner court to worship. And at that doorway, there was a sign that, that threatened the, the, the Greeks. If you aren't a Jew and you come in here, you, you, you do so at the cost of your own life. So there was this dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Greeks. It's what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2. When Jesus came, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. There was an actual wall that says, you pass this wall, you're going to die. And so these guys would worship in the outer courtyard of the Greeks. Now, verse 21, it says, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, we don't know all the details here. We do know Philip is a Greek name. It, John mentions his town. Possibly they knew of Philip or they maybe knew someone in that group knew Philip. And, and so they came up to him and, and they said, uh, Philip, we want to see Jesus. Now, that phrase to see wasn't uh, just like a literal, we want to see him because they've already could see him. He was out in the open to see what they were asking for was like an, uh, a sit down conversation with Jesus. They want to have an interview. They want to talk with Jesus. That, that phrase to see is used 71 times in the gospel of John. And almost every time it's referring to more than just sight. In John 1, it says, no one has seen God. And it's referring to more than just physically with your eyes. And it says, but Jesus came and has made God known, the Father known. At the end of that first chapter, Jesus is inviting the disciples. And he says, come and you will see. This, this sight, it has this, this kind of more this, this idea of intimacy. And they're saying, we want to see Jesus. We want to like actually get to know who he is. 
Now, John doesn't tell us why they were so curious. We can speculate maybe they were just a part of this general crowd and, you know, that there was hype and excitement and they thought, hey, we want to see Jesus. Um, But that's probably not likely or else why would John mention them? There's something unique to these Greeks. Another idea is that these Greeks... As you may know, they, they may be, uh, there was this tradition, this great history of Greek philosophy and that tried to explain the good life and, and, and religious ideas of where we came from and where we're going and how to live. And, and maybe it's possible these Greeks were kind of sick of their own philosophy. They maybe are a little tired of the, the answers they were being told by Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. I want something more. Maybe that's what's going on. You know, one other option is between verses 19 and 20. We don't know exactly, but, but there's a good chance some time has passed between verse 19 and 20. And possibly Jesus is literally in that courtyard about to overturn the tables. Or possibly he already overturned the tables and these Greeks saw him do it. And they're thinking, hey, we want more of this guy. We don't know exactly why they want to see him, but it's so significant. John included this detail in this text. Now, if you remember, John doesn't just include general information. He's very selective with his information. He knows there's three other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with all kinds of historical information. He's trying to get us to believe in Jesus, to see Jesus, the, as, as John Calvin said, the soul of Jesus. The first three gospels show us his body, but John shows us his soul. John is, John, so John's specifically pointing these Jews out. And and again, we don't know exactly why. And, And then in verse 23, we see, or 22, Philip is a little nervous and he's like, I need to go talk to Andrew. And so it says, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, we aren't told if this meeting ever happened. We aren't told if they did get to sit down with Jesus or not. What John wants us to focus on, and this is so important, is the response that came out of Jesus when the Greeks came looking for him. That's what John wants our attention on. And so the Greeks kind of fade away. That historical detail passes from our sight. And John wants us to notice, look what Jesus said. Look what he said. And and so now we're going to spend some time on the response of Jesus. There are four verses here. And there are at least four truths about the cross that that John wants us to look at and marinate and understand what Jesus is like and salvation is like and what it means to follow him. And so we see the response. Let's let's, uh, frame it this way. I'm just gonna go through each of these four verses with a summary of the the truth about the cross. Okay, so the first first truth is this. Jesus reveals his glory through the cross. Jesus reveals his glory through the cross. Let's read again verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, often when we read the Bible, we just think like, okay, get me to the point. Let's, let's move on. I want to get to the end of the story. 
But again, the story isn't so much what John is focusing. He's, he's like, look what Jesus said. There's three profound truths in this verse, okay? Let's slow down and look at it. First thing Jesus says is, the hour has come. The hour has come. Throughout this whole gospel, Jesus has said again and again and again, my hour has not yet come. Mary comes, Jesus, they don't have any wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. He says it when they want to make him king. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's been pushing off his hour. And yet something about these Greeks evoked this response. It's time. The hour has come. Now, why? Why, after the Greeks asked to see Jesus, why is it that now the hour has come? Well, that clue is in the next thing Jesus says. He refers to himself as what? The son of man. Now, if you've stuck around with the gospel of John, you've heard that that, that's an expression Jesus uses when, when he's thinking about a prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter seven is when we first hear this phrase, the son of man. When we hear this prophecy of the son of man. And I actually want us to read that. If you have quick fingers, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter seven. We'll read two verses. Daniel seven verses 13 and 14. This is in the mind of Jesus as he's speaking. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now hear this, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see what triggered it for Jesus? His kingdom, according to the Jewish mind in the very previous verses was his national military, we're we're recapturing the promised land for us, Israel. And yet Jesus refers to his hour has come and he's the son of man and, and the son of man's kingdom is for the Gentiles, for every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus is realizing, he's recognizing it's happening. My kingdom is coming. It's happening. Jesus is witnessing, experiencing in history. The Greeks are coming. They're coming. In fact, look at the last verse of our last text, verse 19. What did the Pharisees say? You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're recognizing, man, the whole world is going after him. And Jesus is recognizing my kingdom is coming. And it's, it's for the whole world. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles and those who live in Southern California 2,000 years later. That's his kingdom. It's coming. Now, as amazing as that is and sounds, 
Jesus has even one more thing on his mind. Look at the, the last bit of this sentence. He says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now to the disciples mind, they're thinking, awesome. Jesus is going to be glorified. We're going to do this thing. It's, it's happening. But, but what, is, what is in Jesus's mind? Is he speaking of his time to be glorified? What, what does that mean for Jesus? Well, if you look at verse 27, just jump down to verse 27, we can see what's on his mind. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. How does Jesus get his kingdom and his glory? He gets it through the cross. He gets his glory through the cross. That's our first point. Jesus reveals his glory through the cross. Through the cross. Listen, the way Jesus is displaying his glory to the nations is by hanging naked on a cross. That's how he displays his glory. That's what the glory of Jesus looks like. It looks like shame, public humiliation, and death on a cross. And as as hard as it is in our backwards minds to grasp, the way God has chosen to reveal his glory to the world, his mercy, his majesty, his character, his loving kindness, his hatred of sin and holiness, the way he chooses to reveal his glory is by sending his son to die humiliated on the cross. Often we like feel bad for Jesus on the cross. But that's Jesus revealing his glory. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said of this text, Christ's death is his glory. And it ought to be ours. To spiritualize, Christ was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. A glory never equaled shone around the conqueror of death and hell when he bowed his head and said, it is finished. That's what the glory of God looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals his glory in the cross. And that leads us to the next truth about the cross in verse 24. And that truth is this, that fruit comes only through the cross. Fruit comes Kingdom growth, fruit, spiritual life comes only through the cross. Let's read again verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, just pause real quick. That's what Jesus wants us to do when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. We're like, yeah, yeah, truly, truly, I say to you. When he says that, he's saying, hey, listen up. I'm about to say something very important, very profound. I'm not lying. 
This may sound crazy to your backwards mind, but this is the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's important, he says, unless, unless. Listen, unless Jesus came and died on the cross, there is no hope for you and me. There was no other way. There was no other condition for us to be saved, for the kingdom of God to advance, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. It's impossible unless he came. And then notice the words, bears much fruit. Like a, like a fruitful grain of wheat. The death of Jesus doesn't just make fruit possible. Doesn't just make it available. It's actual. It bears fruit. It happens. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just say, you know, I'll just stay down here and if you want to like do something, maybe you can decide that you can rise again and, and be saved. No, he, he accomplished something on the cross. He died and he bore much fruit. He said, it is finished. He paid the price of salvation. He got the job done. That fruit has been born in the person of Jesus. It bears much fruit. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. It's not an option. It bears much fruit. And these Gentiles are just a preview of what is to come because of the death of Jesus. Listen, if you are a Christian, you are part of that fruit. You're part of that much fruit. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. We received it by grace alone, through the death of Christ alone. And though we follow Jesus and we want to bear fruit for Jesus, we recognize that unless he died, this whole thing's in vain. Unless he died and rose again, we are just working ourselves up into an emotional religious frenzy. And we're no different from every other religion in the world. But, but Jesus died and rose again and has borne much fruit, the fruit of salvation. Now, the next truth Jesus points is, first two verses, he's, he's talking about himself and his own death. And then he kind of turns a corner and, and begins to kind of point uh, this towards anyone who would follow him. What does this mean for his disciples? What does the cross mean for us personally in our walk with God. And so the third truth is this, to love your life, you must take it to the cross. To love your life, you must take it to the cross. To love your life, you must hate it, Jesus says. Let's read again, verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, interesting, that word life is also the same word for soul. To love your soul, you must take it to the cross. 
He's speaking of the, the very thing that, that makes us alive. Now, now, what is Jesus saying? He, he says these things sometimes. You're like, Jesus, is, is that, that doesn't even make sense. You're contradicting yourself. What does it mean to hate your life and love your life? Well, he's picking up on a Jewish expression here. And it often uses the word hate to mean to love less. Okay, that's something we see all throughout the scriptures. If you remember the text, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. He's saying, I loved Jacob in a way that was special. And I didn't love Esau in that same way. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. If you remember, Leah and Rachel were, were both married to Jacob. And it, it says that uh, Jacob loved Rachel because she was beautiful, but he, he hated Leah. Now, he, we, it's not that he literally hated everything about her, but he loved her less than he loved Rachel. Jesus says something very similar in Luke 14, 26. He says, you must hate your father and your mother and your wife and your kids. <laughs> like, wow, Jesus, that's pretty strong. Now he's picking up on this idea. He's saying, you must love them less than you love me. That's what he's saying. You, your love for your spouse, for your children, for your own parents cannot compete with me. In fact, your love for me must be so strong that your love for everyone else pales in comparison. It looks like hatred. And again, we see other times in the Bible, he says, we are to, you know, husbands love your wife and we're to honor our parents. So he's not saying you must hate them in a way we often think of it. He's saying you are to love them less. And so to sum up what Jesus is getting at in verse 25 is this. If you put yourself and your interests and your good in this life before God and others, in the end, you'll lose it all. If you put yourself and your interests and your good in this life before God and others, in the end, you will lose it all. But if you put Jesus, if you put Jesus before yourself in this life, if you carry a cross and you die to yourself, you will actually gain your life, your soul. One of my favorite pastors, J.C. Ryle, sums it up this way. He who loves the life that now is so much that he cannot deny himself anything for the sake of his own soul will find at length he has lost everything. And it's explained, Jesus explains it through this this metaphor that everyone at that time is familiar with, a grain of wheat. What he's saying is this is embedded into creation. This is how life actually works. We are backwards to think if I put myself first and I put myself before God and everyone else, I will gain something. And he's saying that's not how life even works at all in the natural, let alone for your soul. He says, nothing is ever gained by this self-absorption. If a grain of wheat just wants to keep its life, it remains alone and nothing ever happens. It has to die and decompose and, and then it, it brings forth fruit. He's saying that's the way the, the world works. We know this. No, no athlete has ever won a championship by giving into every craving to sleep and eat and do whatever they want and then just shows up for the championship. That's not how it works. No relationship ever thrived by refusing to put the other person before ourselves. It just doesn't work that way. No accomplishment in business or any skill ever comes through a lack of self-denial. Jesus is just pointing out, this is just the way the universe works. 
This is the way nature works. This is the, rela- the way relationships work. How much more is it true for your own soul? No soul ever healed itself through an obsession with itself and its past and its deficiencies and what happened to it. And, and it's just let me think about myself for a really long time and pay everyone to help me think about myself and then I'll be healed. That's not how your soul is healed. The only way for our souls to find true life is by looking outside of ourselves, by dying to ourselves, by looking to Jesus to satisfy ourselves, by looking to the cross to atone for our own sins and iniquities. When we look at Christ, when we look away from ourselves, contrary to our backwards world, we actually find life and healing. That's the way the world works. It's the way our souls work. It's the way salvation works. And I love this because Jesus is saying, listen, it's the most sane thing to do to hate yourself and love me more. We're like, what are you saying, Jesus? I not put myself first. He's saying it's the most sane thing to do. You want to have life? Deny your life. You want to have joy? Put me and others first, not yourself. You would be insane to put this short, temporary life first and lose everything for eternity. He says it explicitly, whoever hates his life in this world. Why would you put these short, temporary things before your soul and eternity? I love this. This is so counterintuitive again to us, but the saints of God have been chewing on this truth and and, and saying amazing things about it for all human history. And I'm going to do something I, I normally don't do but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a handful of paragraphs from saints throughout history that have just marinated on this truth. And I want us just to get a little bit of church history and listen to this as fleshed out by some saints. So I want to I first read a few things, a few sentences from Augustine from the fourth century when he was talking about this. He begins his book, The Confessions, this way. He says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. He's saying, we were made for you. Of course we won't find a rest until we go back to you. There's a old Puritan named Jeremiah Whitaker. He, he wrote part of that great uh, Westminster, Westminster Confession. And that, 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 that sentence we all know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He was one of the pastors who, who wrote that. Listen to what he said of this truth. He says, Christ requires nothing but for your good. Did you hear that? He requires nothing but for your good. And ask but your own souls why you are not in love with the ways of Christ. It is only Satan's suggestions to make you think the yoke of Christ is uneasy. Man, we forget that. Oh, but it's so hard to follow Jesus. It's so hard to deny myself. Jesus is saying, no, it's not. Do you know what's hard? is slavery to sin. Slavery to Satan. Slavery to this world. Going with every wind of doctrine. That's hard. 
My yoke is easy. Come and have life and rest for your souls. We live in a backwards world. We believe the lies that it's, it's worse and it's harder to follow Jesus. It's not. It's the most sane thing to do. There's a missionary named J- Jim Elliott. In the 1950s, he gave his life. He was a martyr uh, as he was reaching this unreached people group down in Ecuador. He, he sums it up so well. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Man, he is no fool who gives what he can't keep. This, this temporary life to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life with Jesus. And I'll read one more. You've probably heard this at some point. The great C.S. Lewis wrote about how foolish and insane we are to, to look for joy everywhere else but in Christ. He says this, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. It is the most sane and joy-filled thing to do to lay down your life, your temporary desires for your spouse and your kids and your neighbors and Jesus. It is the most sane and joy-filled thing to do, to lay down our life, to gain it back for eternity. And so we've seen Jesus reveals his glory in the cross. We've seen fruit comes only through the cross. We've seen for us to love our life, we must take it to the cross. And finally, and this is at the bottom of it all. The fourth truth is this, fellowship with Jesus is found at the cross. Fellowship with Jesus is found at the cross. Verse 26 If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's not just saying, it's not just better for us. When we lay down our life, we do so to be with Jesus. Jesus is there at the cross. Jesus is there in our suffering. What sustains a Christian ultimately through all this self-denial is that Jesus is there and he is worth it. Like that parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13, to find him is, to like, is like finding a, a man who found a, a treasure in a field worth more than everything he's ever had. And so, so in his joy, he sells all he has to gain that treasure. That treasure is Jesus. We are gaining Jesus when we go the way of the cross. We're not after suffering for suffering's sake. We're not these creepy masochists that just try to suffer anytime we can. In fact, uh, uh, another Puritan said, a cross without a Christ never made any man better. (laughs) A cross without a Christ never made any man better. We don't suffer to suffer. We suffer because we follow Jesus and Jesus is there. We, we carry a cross because we want to be with Jesus and go the ways of Jesus. 
We suffer because we want Jesus to obey him. We say, I'm just going to go where he's going. I want to be where he is. I want to do what he says to do. And if it entails a cross, and it does, so be it, because he is worth it. The best part of following Jesus is we get to be with him and we get him. That's the, that's the goodness of this whole thing. We go where he goes, we do what he does, we say what he says, we face persecution and hardship and we, we face temporary losses, but we do it to be with Jesus. I wanna read Philippians 3.10 for us as Paul talks about this very thing. Philippians, let me actually start at verse seven. He begins by giving his credentials and how good his life was and how awesome he is. And then he says in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then listen to these words, verse 10, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We say Christ is worth it. He is worth the cross. He is worth obedience. There is no greater treasure for our souls than Christ. There is no greater way out of temptation than thinking about Christ. Thinking of why would I rob myself fellowship with Christ? Why would I go the way of death? And when we do fall into temptation, where else would we go but back to Christ who went to the cross for us? The Christian life and I just want to close with this, is it's not one of ultimate self-denial. It's of a temporary denial of our own temporary life and replacing it with the life of Christ and the fellowship of Christ and the ways of Christ. And so I want to ask all of us with these Greeks that we read at the beginning in mind, have you seen him? Have you, have you seen him this way? Have you seen him to be of infinite beauty and glory and majesty that you would joyfully lay down everything to have him? And if you haven't yet, I just want to, to tell you it is worth it. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He does provide rest for your soul that no other person or substance or circumstance can. He is worth it. So Jesus, we just say we are yours. We are yours, Lord. You have purchased us as you lay down your life on the cross. 
I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your word and how it, it puts forth the glorious person of Jesus. Lord, I pray for any today who have been fooled by the backwardness of their own flesh or the world or the devil to look for joy or forgiveness or hope anywhere else. Would your spirit graciously bring them back to yourself, bring them back to Jesus, help them see there is hope in Jesus and forgiveness and grace in Jesus. There is satisfaction and joy in Jesus. Lord, I pray for us as we follow you this week, as we face endless opportunities to put ourself and our interests and our pleasure first. Help us to recognize the lies of this backwards world, that that's not where joy is found. It's not where fulfillment is found. It's found in you, Jesus, and in the way of the cross as we follow you and obey you and die to our temporary lives to gain true life in Christ. Help us, Lord. I pray for the dads this week that they would lay down their life for their their wives. I pray that they would lay down their lives for their kids. Lord, I pray for the moms this week as they, in many ways, have no other option but to lay down their life. Lord, would they do so with joy, knowing this this is what it's like to be like Jesus. This is life. This is how I teach my kids about Jesus and the gospel and truth and and life. Lord, I pray for those who are single and are longing for companionship. Lord, would they find their life and their joy in you, Christ? You hold their lot. They trust in you. Would they lay down their desires? All of us are desires, Lord, for impurity. We know it's insane. It's a trap. Lord, would we grow in holiness? Would we resist temptation? Lead us out of temptation, Jesus, into peaceful green pastures that are found as we we follow you. Your ways are better, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would lose our life um, as we stand for truth in this backwards world. Would we not be afraid of, being, of, of us being thought as backwards by this world, this crazy fallen world. Help us to put your word in our hearts, Lord, that we would know what is true, that we would have confidence in what is the way to live and the way to think. Would God, by your grace, would we be able to put more of your word and, and your truth into our minds and hearts than, than, than we take in of the world and its ideas of the good life and of truth? Help us, God. Lord, would we lay down our lives in the acts of evangelism, Lord? Would we not fear people? Would we love people enough, as Jesus, you did, to to speak to them about truth and the, the good news? We actually have good news for this world. We have good news about the way life works. In relationships and joy, it works. Lord, help us be effective. And above all, Jesus, we just thank you that at the end of the day, we have received the fruit of you laying down your life. We thank you for the blood you shed that we could never shed. For your holy, precious, perfect blood that you shed. 
as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, that you drank the wrath of God so that we could become the righteousness of God. We thank you, Christ, that you laid down your life. We could never earn it. We could never work for it. We can, the only thing we bring and contribute is our own sin that made it necessary. And so we just say, thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for new life, Jesus. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, you made us alive again in Christ. Thank you that you are with us, Holy Spirit, that we do not lay down our life with our own willpower. But we have new hearts that love to lay down our life. We have the Spirit of God that helps us to resist our flesh and to run after Jesus, to love your word and your laws, to delight in them. And Lord, I do, we do together, we just pray for those in our midst and in our community who have yet to see Jesus, who have yet to receive new life, who are looking, Lord, for hope in all of the wrong places, Lord, who are suffering as they are looking for other things to satisfy and bring rest to their souls. Lord, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them, God. And would the name of Jesus be on our tongues and our lips as we scatter today. Who is like you, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet you showed your glory as you hung on the cross. Who is like you? Lord, would we now worship you? Would we fall at your feet? Would we raise our hands and our voices and our hearts to sing to you? Lord, if we have any secret sin, in our own hearts, would we bring it to you? Would we bring it to the light? Would we confess it and know that we will find grace in our time of need? Mm. 